You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. We have two Bible readings today. Uh, the first is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through to chapter 2, verse 3. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the second reading is from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Hi, brothers and sisters. Uh, Let's pray together before we look at God's word. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that today uh, you would show us uh, exactly how it is that we can call one another family, brothers and sisters in Christ, and also what it looks like for us to love one another as family. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder what your experience of family has been like. I want to say right up front that I really love my family, right? No doubt about that. But still, my experience of my own family and my kind of second-hand experience of other people's families uh, has shown me that families are really complicated. Maybe you agree. Some families are are very loving and warm and connected, while others seem quite cold and distant or even detached. Some families are very structured and organised, maybe even rigid, while others are quite fluid and flexible, maybe chaotic. But whatever our families are like, the fact is that none of our families are perfect. I'm sure we can all remember moments of deep love and joy in our families, as well as times of deep frustration and pain in our families. So when the Bible refers to the church as family, I think we've got to acknowledge that our complicated experiences of family can really colour or perhaps even distort our perspectives on what that means, what it means for us to be family. So today we're going to take a look at God's Word together so we can see what it looks like from God's perspective for us not just to be family, but to love one another as family. And we're going to see that we have been born again into God's family, so we should commit to loving one another as family. You see, if you kind of pull back the curtain on our cosmos, our universe, you'll see that at the very heart of reality is the perfect, loving family. The God who is three in one, Father, Son and Spirit. Uh, Of course, some people will tell you that there's nothing beyond this cosmos. This material world is all there is. And what we see in this world, according to evolutionary biology, uh, is that everything is about power. 
Buddy, it's survival of the fittest. The strong eat the weak. Right? The heart of reality is power. And likewise, there are others who would tell you that there's a kind of solitary God at the heart of reality. A powerful God who really demands that everyone submits to him. In fact, the word Islam itself literally means submission to the will of God. In a sense, it's power at the heart of reality. Other people believe in a whole group of gods who, frankly, couldn't care less about human beings. They just want to use and abuse people for their own ends. All sorts of people will tell you that power is at the heart of reality. But the Christian story is different. Right? It says that love is at the heart of reality. Right? That the perfect loving family, this God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? And whereas our families are so often ruined by our selfishness, that this perfect family of the Trinity is perfect because it's overflowing not with selfishness, but selflessness. Right, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit uh, each seek to love and honour and delight in each other. And the wonderful news of Christianity is that God actually invites us, right, with all our flaws and sin and mess, uh, to actually enter in to his family, right, to become his children. Right, but we can only accept that invitation if God works a radical change in our heart. So if you take a look at the outline of my talk, you'll see that we must be born again into God's family. In John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, Jesus clearly teaches that to be a part of his people, we must be born again by the power of God's Spirit. He says to a Jewish leader and teacher named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You see, to, to be a part of God's kingdom, it's not enough to be born naturally, with your mother's waters breaking in birth. But you've also got to be born spiritually, right? having the power of God's Spirit give you new life. Jesus explains why this new birth is needed in verse 6. Right? He says, flesh give birth, gives birth to flesh, uh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. But if you want to be a part of God's spiritual kingdom, the reign of God, uh, you've got to be born not just by the will or power of human flesh, uh, but also by the will and power of God's Spirit. But if you want to be a part of God's people, God's family, you must be born again by the power of God's Spirit. Which is a bit different, isn't it, to how that phrase, born-again Christian, is typically used today. Right, today, it's often used to describe a Christian who has a particularly radical conversion story, you know, from doing drugs in the gutter to doing sermons in the church. Or maybe they're, it's a Christian who's got a particularly emotional expression of their faith. Right, hands raised, hands, arms raised, you know, hands clapping, feet dancing. Right, they're born again. Or maybe it's a Christian who's uh, very conservative in their politics. You might sometimes hear someone say, well, of course they think that about that issue. They're a born-again Christian. 
But here Jesus says that this, is, uh, that this experience of being born again is not something reserved for some special subset of Christians. It's something that all his true people must experience. Right? He says, you must be born again by the power of God's Spirit. And that's not something that we can boast about. Right? Because look at verse 8. Right? Jesus says that this supernatural birth by God's Spirit isn't something we have control over. Take a look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see Jesus' point where we can't control God's Spirit any more than we can control the winds. So we can't control our spiritual birth any more than any of us were in control of our natural birth, our physical birth. Being born again by God's Spirit is an incredible gift of God's grace, His mercy, His compassion. Right? God's Spirit freely chooses to blow through, as it were, your hard and sinful heart uh, to bring you new life. Right? Jesus says we must be born again by the power of God's Spirit. Right? But how does that new birth happen? Well, typically, it happens by the power of God's Word. Oh, sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, uh, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, uh, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Right, why is it that we should have this sincere and deep love for one another? We'll take a look at verse 23. Right, Peter says, For, right, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, for the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. At the risk of kind of sharing a bit too much information, in the Bible, that word seed is another way of speaking about semen, you know, the male seed uh, that's planted, as it were, in the mother's womb, right, to, to bring new life. But here Peter's pointing out something that we all know, right, that seed is perishable, in that it leads to the birth of a person who will one day grow old and die. They'll perish. In contrast, when the imperishable seed of God's word is planted in someone's heart, it generates a supernatural life that is imperishable, right? a life that will endure forever, just as God's word endures forever. So everyone who is born again by the power of God's word will endure forever in loving relationships with God and his people. Right? We are God's people. We, as God's people, rather, are born again by the power of his word and spirit. Right? So we're adopted into God's family. Right? That perfect family of love. Right? The God who is three in one. Father, Son and Spirit. Right? Well, which from one perspective is a wonderful thing. Right? But from another perspective is a kind of complicated thing. 
Right? Because now that you're a part of God's family, how are you supposed to prioritise the different families that you're a member of? In the early 1970s, one of the most popular shows on TV was The Brady Bunch. Right? Because in that era, uh, the, the kind of nuclear biological family was considered to be the primary network of relationships. It was your nuclear family that, that, uh, where you spent your most time and got your, uh, the majority of your emotional support. It was in your family that you felt your strongest sense of responsibilities and obligations. But by the, the mid-1990s, right, the most popular TV show of my teenage years was Friends. And, of course, the, the overwhelming message of friends uh, is that your most important family is not your biologic, biological family. Right? It's the family that, uh, excuse, excuse me, uh, it's what has come to be called your found family. Your found family uh, being the, the group of people, right, typically your friends, uh, with whom you, you formed a, a family based on your shared experiences and understandings. Right? They're the family, not that you were born into, uh, but the family that you've found, you've discovered. Uh, so many, if not most of us, have at least these two families. Right? Our biological family and our found family. Right? But if you become a Christian, all of a sudden you've got three families. Because now you've got to make time for your church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it gets complicated, right? How are you supposed to prioritise these different families? You want to come along to church at DPC, but your family's always gone to a different church, or they've never gone to church at all. How do you fit that in? Well, you want to serve in that ministry team, but it happens to be on the night that you've always gone to pub trivia with your close friends. What do you do with that? You want to make a decision to go into paid gospel ministry, but you know it's going to cause all sorts of tensions with your parents. It's complicated. So some of the kind of principles I'm about to talk, uh, I'm about, to talk about will probably seem simplistic. But I still think they're useful, even if it's tricky to work out how to apply them. How do we prioritise these different family relationships? Well, first, we're to love and honour our biological family. In Mark chapter 7, verses 9 to 13, you can read it later on, Jesus upholds the fifth of God's Ten Commandments, which says that we're to honour our father and mother. And likewise, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul speaks about our obligation to provide for vulnerable members of our family. But in that case, he's speaking about widows, but the principle could apply to other vulnerable family members. Also, in John 19, verses 26 and 27, even while Jesus is hanging off the cross, he organises his dear friend John to take care of his mother, Mary. But as Christians, we're to love and honour our biological family. A second, as Christians, we're to love and honour our found family, but our friends. But first, because every single human being is created in the image of God, that they're precious, and they're worthy of your love and honour. 
And second, because in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches that we're to love our neighbours no matter who they are. So as those who've been born again into God's family, we're to love and honour our biological family, and we're to love and honour our found family. But third, this is where it gets trickier. We're to follow Christ, even if it causes tension or division in those other families. At Christmas, we often talk about how Jesus came to bring peace on earth. And that's true. In one sense, Jesus did come to bring peace on earth, because through his life and death and resurrection, he made it possible for us to be at peace with God and at peace with one another. But in Luke 12, verses 51 to 53, Jesus says something challenging. He says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, Jesus says. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So yes, Jesus comes to to bring peace between us and God and and between all those who trust and follow him. But if you've got family members who don't trust and follow Jesus, he's pretty clear here, isn't he, that there's likely to be tension in those relationships. So what do we do, right? In the midst of that tension or conflict or, or division, how, how do you keep loving and honouring your biological family or, or your found family uh, while also being clear that your primary loyalty lies with Jesus? Well, it's really difficult, right? Some of you, that, that, that's your lived experience, that's your life. Oh, I don't want to make it seem easy, right? But in general, I think we've got to know ourselves and try to avoid two extremes. You've got to avoid always taking the path of least resistance, right? because you just want to keep everyone happy. But on the other hand, you've got to avoid always taking the path of most resistance, right? because you see it as a bit of a badge of honour to suffer for Jesus. But well, we're not called to always take the path of least resistance or most resistance, right? But we are called to follow Christ even when it causes tension and conflict in our other families. And fourth, as well as giving our primary loyalty to Jesus, we're called to ensure that Jesus' people, right, our spiritual family, also has our primary loyalty. For some of you, that's that's a bit jarring. What? Primary loyalty to my spiritual family? But take a look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Mark 3, verses 20 and 21. There we read, Then Jesus entered into a home, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said he is out of his mind. Why, Jesus' biological family think he's crazy, he's nuts. Maybe your family's felt like that about your faith. 
Well, how does Jesus respond to this? Take a look down here in verse 31. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, uh, standing outside that they sent someone in to call him. Uh, a crowd was sitting around Jesus, uh, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus asked. And then he looked at those who were seated in a circle around him, uh, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And at first that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Well, like Jesus is kind of disowning his family. Right? But we've already seen how Jesus calls us, even commands us, to love and honour our family. Right? So it can't be that. Right? Jesus' point here is that as the eternal Son of God become flesh, his primary family are those who, like him, are committed to doing the will of his Father in heaven. And the same is true for us. We, as adopted sons and daughters of God, for us, our primary family are those who, like us, are committed to doing the will of our Father in heaven. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They should be prioritised. They should come first. But what does it look like to prioritise our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, in short, we prioritise our brothers and sisters by loving them. Uh, In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says uh, that it's our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, that is the distinctive mark of being his disciples. Because in many ways, our love for one another as as disciples is unique. It stands out. Because there are plenty of communities in our world in which people love one another because they're like one another. Whether they're of the same culture or language or interests or, or, or perspectives. I know all communities in which people love one another because they like one another. They just naturally click. They love hanging out. They get along really well. But that's not the church, is it? Let's face it. We don't love one another because we're all like one another. We're quite a diverse community. And we don't love one another simply because we like one another. We don't all naturally click and get along. Certainly not. We love one another despite all our sins and flaws and really painfully annoying habits. Because we're fair. But by the power of God's word and spirit, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does it look like for us to love one another as family? Well, first, it means meeting together regularly. Hebrews 10 verse 25 urges us to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Of course, this is really tough during COVID, which is part of the, well, just part of the pain of not being able to be together. But the point is, how can you possibly love your brothers and sisters if you rarely or irregularly meet with them? You might say, oh, but I'm, I'm committed to Christians in general. I love the church in general. And I understand that temptation, because it's much easier to to meet with and love hypothetical brothers and sisters than real brothers and sisters. But as Christians, 
And we're called to meet regularly with a particular group of Christians, right? A particular church, so that we can love and encourage one another. Second, we love one another by considering how we might spur one another on. Uh, a verse earlier in Hebrews 10, verse 24, we're called to consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. I wonder what you're considering uh, when you come and meet with your brothers and sisters in Christ. What are you, what's on your mind? So maybe, maybe it's, you know, like, how can we manage the kids? Or how annoying is this sermon? Or did I forget to turn the oven off? Or I wonder how my footy team's going. And wouldn't it really kind of enrich our family life if we all entered church, if we all met together, carefully considering how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds? Imagine that. A third way, we're to love one another sincerely and deeply. And we read this verse earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, where Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when there was a saying in Christian circles that said love is a verb. I mean that love is something that you do, not something that you feel. And of course, love isn't just something that you feel. I understand that. It's got to be expressed in what you do. But the love we're called to have for one another in the New Testament as brothers and sisters in Christ certainly includes our feelings. Look at what Peter says. We're to love one another sincerely, deeply. Love one another from the heart. And of course, this deep love for our brothers and sisters isn't something that comes naturally to us. You're not wrong, I hear some of you say, right? But it's something that comes supernaturally. We heard about this earlier. It's generated by the power of God's word and spirit, giving us new life, right? empowering us to love one another with a sincere and deep love. A fourth, uh, our love for one another is to be costly and practical. In 1 John 3, verse 16, John says, and this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But the love we've seen and experienced in Christ it isn't just him kind of expressing his feelings for us. You know, I love you guys so much. I don't know. It's Christ loving us with a costly and practical love, right? Laying down his life for us on the cross. So in verse 17, John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's impossible. Dear children, John says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We're to love one another in a way that kind of matches up or with the love we've experienced from God in Christ. The more your heart's gripped by God's costly and practical love shown to you in Christ at the cross, the more you'll be moved to love your brothers and sisters with a costly and practical love. 
A fifth, we're to love one another by throwing off any behaviours that in the end will wreck our family life. Uh, we heard in Ken's sermon last week from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, uh, that being a part of God's family, right, being his children, means committing to being like him. Right? As Peter says, being holy as he is holy. And what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, is that part of living this life of holiness together uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ is getting rid of any behaviours that are just going to wreck our family. Right, take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Right, the first word there is malice. Right, it's really hard to love your brother or sister if you've got malice in your heart towards them. Right, an evil intent to, to harm them. It's hard to love them if you speak to them with lies or deceit. Because all, the rela all relationships are based on trust. It's hard to love them if there's hypocrisy in your life. If you're in the habit of saying one thing to your brother or sister's face and then doing another thing behind their back. Likewise, envy destroys life. Because instead of being thankful for, uh, sorry, instead of being thankful when God blesses a brother or sister, you're resentful when God blesses a brother or sister. Because you think you deserve what they got. And you're filled with envy. And of course, attempts to slander your brother or sister. Why they slander their reputation? Why that destroys life? The summary point is that we love our brothers and sisters by throwing off any sinful behaviour that will really wreck our family life. Right? Behaviours, in the end, that just aren't fitting for the children of a holy God. And finally, we love one another by committing together to growing and maturing as God's children. In 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, Peter says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you might grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Sometimes we might think to ourselves, well, if you really love me, you just accept me as I am, and not expect me to change you anyway. But that's not God's definition of love, is it? Even though God loves us so much that he accepts us as we are, he loves us way too much to leave us as we are. So once we're newborn spiritual babes, right, born again by the power of his word and spirit, he expects us to grow and mature as his children. But in the good news of the gospel, we've got our first taste of his pure spiritual milk. Right, we tasted and saw that our Lord is good. Right, but having had that taste, we're called to keep feeding on God's word so that together, as a family of God, we might grow and mature as God's children. But I understand that our experiences of family are complicated. Right, but, by, but by the power of God's word and spirit, we as a church have been born again into God's family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So may God strengthen us to love one another like family. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth 
uh, that by the power of your word and spirit, uh, we have been born again into your family. And we praise you for your amazing grace to us in this way. And we pray, Father, that as your children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that you might strengthen us and empower us uh, to be able to love one another like family. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.